Hey friends, welcome back to the Pastor Talk Podcast as we continue through the shorter Westminster Catechism on our study of the Westminster Confession, some of the um, history of our faith and the teaching tool of our denomination and some of the doctrines. We've been looking uh, the last two weeks at the Ten Commandments. This will be the second week where we finish them. We finished what is sometimes called the first table, which are the commandments of commandments one through four that have to do with our relationship primarily with God. The second part of the Ten Commandments, uh, five through ten, really then shift the focus to community, life together, and relationships. So uh, there is a quite a bit to cover today, several of the questions. Most of them are short. We'll try to do our best to get through them and give them some consideration as we go. So let's, Michael, jump right in. We're at the fifth commandment, question 63 of the catechism. The fifth commandment, what is the fifth commandment? The fifth commandment is honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land your God is giving you. Then we move on to 64. What is required in this commandment? The fifth commandment requires the preserving the honor and performing the duties belonging to everyone in their several places and relations as superiors, inferiors, or equals. So this is going to be a theme that we'll see today, a real expansion of the commandments. Rather than read them literally in their smallest context, you're going to see that Westminster consistently broadens the context. So here we start with honor thy mother and father, a familiar commandment, but the interpretation at the very first line is all duties belonging to everyone in their several places and relations as superiors, inferiors, or equals. So a, a kind of using this commandment, Michael, as a lens to see a much broader uh, group or or a spectrum of commitments and responsibilities. You know, I think in our modern culture, Clint, there's been a lot of conversation about power dynamics, and there's been a lot of conversation about, you know, uh, who uh, can use that power in unhelpful ways over other people, things like that. I, I think it might surprise us looking at a text that is hundreds of years old to see people talking very, very seriously, Christians thinking very, very deeply about our responsibilities, our duties to one another and our different vocations and roles and stations in life. And to see this commandment about mother and father as not just a familial command, but as one that has implications for literally the structure of our societies, the structures of our business, of how we conduct ourselves in the commercial world, the idea that the commandment reaches every part of our lives and our structures as it relates to how we bear responsibility in the life lived together. Clint, this is an unbelievably contemporary idea. It's getting a lot of press, I think, a lot of time and thought right now. And we might be surprised to see that, you know, as there's no uh, new thing under the sun, this has been thought of deeply, that this is connected even into the very heart of the Ten Commandments themselves. I, I think that there's there's a lot of wisdom as we turn over this leaf, Clint. It's interesting that mother and father here become sort of metaphorical for all of those various relationships with authority and with relationship with other people. Um, maybe on one hand, that's not su surprising. This is written in a time in which families are 
for the most part, still very nuclear, uh, very hierarchical. But it's also written in the backdrop of intense political uncertainty and upheaval. And so it, it probably makes sense that the catechism looks beyond the home, though it includes the home, but looks beyond that to the broader society, to broader relationships. You know, if you take the next question here, which is the inverse, 65, what's forbidden? The fifth commandment forbids the neglecting of or doing anything against the honor and duty which belongs to everyone in their places and relations. You know, I suppose, Michael, there's a sense in which this interpretation could be critiqued for assuming an observance to power, hierarchical power. But I think if it's read fairly, while that is a legitimate concern, wrapped in this is the idea that that we owe something to everyone relationally and that we should fulfill that obligation in Christ and by Christ out of respect for each and every person as an individual, but particularly those who have some authority, we should give that to them. We should speak of others with respect. There's, uh, there's a lot here, you know, uh, those who govern us. We should be careful about how we talk about them, even if we don't agree with them. Those who are in our families, those who are in our, our businesses, mm-hmm. those who might supervise us or have some authority over us, we should make sure that our words and actions are in keeping with a call to have a respect for those that have those positions. Having said that, I, I think, you know, clearly we could have deeper conversation about when is the right time to stand up. The, the catechism is not interested in going along when things are not going the right direction. But there is here, a, I think, a, a broad sensitivity to the idea of authority and people in positions that should be given um, respect and some, uh, maybe I'll just leave it at respect, from Christians in the name of Jesus. Well, let's, I, I think that this is mutually interpreted by the next question. So I think we can have a fuller conversation about what's forbidden when we finish 66. So let's do that, Clint. Sure. Um, what's the reason annexed to the fifth commandment? The reason annexed is a promise of long life and prosperity as far as it shall serve for God's glory and their own good to all who keep such commands. Yeah. So, Clint, uh, the point to make there, I think, is not that this is a causal relationship per se, that it, because one does this, therefore you get the benefit of this other thing. I, I don't think that that's exactly what's in play, but I do think that it points us to that there is a real sort of social network, a kind of strength that happens when people honor one another. And that by definition means that there are different ways of honoring at different times, much like that father-child relationship. There, there are ways of honoring the child in their early years that are not honoring when they're older, when there are moments in which a child should be given the opportunity to practice responsibility or to be held accountable for a lack of immaturity. There, there are some things that happen later that are inappropriate earlier because the child couldn't be expected to be mature in that circumstance, right? Just that particular frame reveals what is true 
writ large across all of society, that we have different expectations for different people at different places. And generally, it is good for everyone if we can build one in which honoring one another, respecting the duties that we have by place of our own vocation, by place of our own uh, abilities, whatever that is, that when we conduct ourselves towards one another with a, a kind of uh, emphasis upon our duty to one another and the honor that is, should be given to another creature, an image bearer of God, Clint, that there's something about that which will inculcate a kind of society in which God can be glorified. It will be ordered, which of course is a word that Presbyterians love. It, it will have the the markers of well-put-togetherness, and that is generally in the Reformed tradition thought to be God-honoring. Yeah, and while while I appreciate what's happening here, you know, it, it is interesting, and this probably goes beyond the catechism, Michael, but to the commandments themselves. It is interesting that as we turn the the page on that first table, the the commandments one through four that have to do with our relationship with God, that we then turn to the idea of our relationship with others and our sort of communal societal obligations. It is fascinating that the first place that the commandments go is the family. And I think maybe in our day and age with a breakdown of family and struggles within families, it might have been nicer to hear a stronger word in that direction from the catechism. I think we can see what the authors are doing here as they take family and they sort of push it out in the idea of other relationships. But in the world in which we live, it would have been helpful to hear from these authors maybe a little stronger note toward those relationships actually within the household and not simply see that as a metaphor for other relationships. It may have been important, I think, in our day and time to speak a word specifically about mother, father, specifically about what does Christianity, what does obedience look like inside the home? Because I think in a way that maybe these these authors couldn't have predicted, that is certainly a, a less clear picture for us than it was for them. Yeah, the, the, there's a real pro-con in that. The, the one is there's a missed opportunity to talk about the ways in which we can model Christ in our most intimate relationships. The other side of that is um, there's wisdom in not mm-hmm. over-contextualizing what is a eternal command. I mean, this is you know thousands of years old, being interpreted hundreds of years ago, and now we're, we're coming to it again. So that there's also the benefit of them giving it to us in that way, but— the task, Clint, to your point, I think the task comes then to us to take this commandment right. seriously in our lives and to recontextualize it into our real families and our real relationships, our real citizenship, whatever that looks like and whatever the need of this moment is. Uh, it, it does require something of us, and you know that is a thing I think we need to own. And therein, I think, is the struggle, Michael. The, the first four commandments are, in a sense, timeless because they're they have to do with relation with the one who is beyond time. These other commandments, as we'll continue to see, are all yeah. 
incredibly contextual. They all say uh, different things perhaps at different times. I don't mean that they mean different things, but I do think we hear them differently depending. And I think the next commandment, if we can move on, is is a really good example of this. What is the sixth commandment? The sixth commandment is thou shalt not kill. What is required in the sixth commandment? The sixth commandment requires all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the life of others. What is forbidden? The sixth commandment forbids the taking away of our own life or the life of a neighbor unjustly or whatsoever tends unto or leads that direction. So, uh, you know, again, we start with what seems clear cut. Thou shalt not kill. But if we've ever, whenever we've tried as Christians to live into the law, we realize that that gets complicated quickly. There's a complexity to what it means. The the commandment do not kill. And I think here the Westminster authors follow suit of virtually every Christian sense that there is a, a core here, which is the preservation of life the protection of life, our own and others. But notice how quickly in question 69 forbids the taking away of our own life or the life of our neighbor unjustly. So already we begin to consider that there may be more to it than that. And I think, you know, that's when had very interesting conversations historically about things like soldiers about things like capital punishment, about war and the nature, about protecting one's family, those kind of moments. And so I I appreciate that the Westminster, the divines is what the authors get called. I appreciate that the divines have recognized that it is not always as simple as one sentence commandment, that there is a messiness inherent in trying to be obedient, and that sometimes there is a a place that we find ourselves in where protecting and preserving may bump into each other. Yeah, Clint, I, I think the words that we might read past in these rather simple sentences uh, come quickly to bear. Um, verse or question 68, all lawful endeavors, lawful mm-hmm. is the key word there. Um, and then we see that in 69, you already mentioned unjustly. Uh, These are really just uh, kind of uh, footnotes a little bit sort of dropped in there, uh, just sort of drawing our attention away to remind us um, that that opens up to conversation what is just and what is lawful. And I would submit to you, by the way, that the divines here are not going to give everything that is written in law is lawful. I I don't think that they would concede that. I think that they would they would certainly give place for people of faith to push back on the idea of where uh, where we should, by conviction, um, draw lines in terms of what it means to preserve life. I, I think that they would very much support that. But wisely, they're not trying to open a conversation of uh, giving an authoritative interpretation of what that is in this day, on this moment. Instead, they are defending what is a a historical, classical understanding of God's 
command that we must honor the Imago Dei in our own life and in others, that God is creator, and so that created must be very aware of this eternal, spiritual, soul life that we've been given as gift, and to extinguish that life in ourselves or in others is in many ways to claim a position as human that we do not deserve. This, this would be, I, I think, the thing that they have at, at the core of this conviction, Clint. And yes, certainly it puts back in our um, hands a very difficult set of conversations, but I think they've honored that that exists and they're trying to point us to the center. Yeah, I appreciate that they're not trying to nail down every contingency, Michael. I think that is more realistic to the way faith works. And I also appreciate that in many of these moments in the answers to the question, they sort of, rather than a hard stop, it, it's almost a kind of dot, 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 as in what comes next. You know, mm-hmm. it's unfortunate that it's a little, it's a little, um, it's a little tangled in our language, but this end of question 69, taking away life or whatsoever tendeth thereunto. And, and you know, or whatever leans that direction, whatever heads that. So it's not simply do not kill. I think it it is a, um, the wisdom of the authors here that they have left us with a conversation that really points us in the direction, what is it that takes away life in others? N- not in the ultimate sense of perhaps murder, though that's clearly included, but other what other ways might we talk about that takes life from people, that oppresses them, that keeps them from the basic happiness, the basic rights, that keeps them from their needs, that keeps them poor, or that keeps them from medical care? What are the ways in which, as Christians, we might have to think about our own lives spilling over and lessening the life of someone else? And I think, you know, they did not live in our society, but I appreciate that they answered the question in a way in their time that asked some very serious follow-up questions in our time. And I think that is the mark of a well-written and well-conceived document is that it continues to have life. And I, and I hear that in the way they answer this question. I think there is a very pastoral a concern that is raised out of a question like this. I, I, we won't have time to address it fully, but just very briefly, I want to name, uh, if you've been around Christians for very long, you know that there are, um, some Christians who have very, very particular, uh, reactions to things like suicide, taking your own life. Um, there, uh, you know, some people, um, ha- have these encounters where a family member at, you know, the worst moment of their life makes that decision. And then that family member is caught up in all of the grief and fear of what does this mean that they took their own life, that they violated this commandment? What does that mean for their eternal soul? Um, we're not going to have time to unpack all of that. But Clint, I, I think you have to read a document like this holistically, and you have to understand the commandments are about the best ordered relationship between us and God. And to look for these commandments as the lens of showing us what outcome they give us in eternity or, you know, what command is uh, it has to be followed to this level. When, when we recognize as humans that the way that they've broadened these, we fail at all of these. I mean, we, we hold others' lives, whether we like it or not, at some level, we are all participating in systems that, 
that are not allowing others to flourish to the extent that if we could make a different choice, they would. I, I, I would just complexify this to just say, don't, don't read a commandment like this and allow it all be judgmental or don't allow it to all bring fear about it. If this is a, a thing that's touched your life in a real way, I, I think just pastorally here, what's happening here is is all couched under an understanding of our need for grace. It's all understood that we need God to intervene in places where we've been unable to meet the need ourselves. And, uh, you know, once again, we, we could talk about what, what are the implications of when we break this down or when we make choices that hurt ourselves or others. That, that's an important conversation, but I wouldn't get fixated, Clint, on a thing like that in a conversation about the Ten Commandments. I think by necessity, the commandments show us the highest standard, Michael. I mean, they, they really picture for us the best, and they ask us to consider where we do not measure up to the best and to strive to lessen that gap to the to yeah. best of our abilities. I, I think in places where the commandments hit particularly hard in our own personal story, it is easy to, to perhaps feel like they are a club and not a, a ruler, not a, not a pointer, not a guide. But I think the clear intention is that we are to see in them a path by which we might see ourselves more faithfully fulfilling them and and I you know that's well said your words are wise in that there there probably are some of these that hit particularly close to home for some people but that's not the intention right. of this the intention in each and every commandment is to show us what is the best way for us in the hopes that we will move toward it. And I think we see it very clearly yeah. in the next commandment, the next Michael, if, there, if yeah. we could go on there. Um, what is the seventh commandment? Thou shall not commit adultery. What is required? The seventh commandment requires the preservation of our own and our neighbor's chastity in heart, speech, and behavior. You know, this is incredible to me, Michael, as people who both preach on regular occasions I think the temptation is always just to do too much, to, you know, to take yeah. a word like don't commit adultery and know something biblically about all of the things, sexuality, purity. I mean, this is a massive, massive scope that we could address this commandment under. And yet the brevity here, the, the one sentence is in, amazingly brief. And yet amazingly complete. The preservation of ours and our neighbor's chastity in heart, speech, and behavior. I mean, that, that is the most beautiful kind of simplicity when it says everything. You need. Well, what about this? Well, does it preserve chastity? Oh. What about this? Does it help your neighbor preserve theirs in heart, in mind, and in deed? And so... You know, the divines in, in cutting to the heart of the matter really sort of cut out all the, well, what if I, what if this happens? Or what if, what if I, the R rated movie, what if it, it, there, there's such a temptation in this area of our life to try splitting hairs. And I really appreciate that this answer just takes us right to the center and says, look, here's a pretty simple standard and 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 that's really is where we where we stand. 
I think your point is well made, and I think it's only emphasized by the following question. What is forbidden by mm. this commandment? Uh, the seventh commandment forbids all unchaste thoughts, words, and actions. And I would submit to you that if we ask this question in, in the average Christian gathering, mm-hmm. you're going to get just painfully long uh, pontification. You can do this, but you can't yeah. do that. That's acceptable. This, is this okay. isn't acceptable. Yeah, this we're not. You we have disagreements. Yeah, hundred percent. What is incredible is within one sentence the awareness that both this has something to say to us. Uh, this has a normative, uh, directive aspect in our lives, and also the recognition that we're going to have to grapple with what chastity is, and. Clint, there's something beautiful uh, when the church gives us words that we don't use in our Mm -hmm. daily life because it's a window, it's an invitation, it's an opportunity for us to set aside some of the vocabulary words that have been handed to us by culture and to ask humbly for God to teach us a new linguistic Mm -hmm. way to understand. And I think chastity is a great word to, to have in the mix here because we, we don't use that in our everyday parlance, and there's some wisdom in turning back to some of these words and asking, okay, so what is it really, truly to be a person of faith who understands what chastity means? And I guarantee you, if you do some word searching both in the Old and New Testament, if you do some work in terms of how the church has understood that theologically, it is more nuanced than what you think, and um, it is more open to embrace more of our lives than what is your initial response going to be. And I think that's a helpful frame. Yeah. I, you know, I haven't done the homework, the word work recently, Michael. I, I think I'd submit that the closest English equivalent that we might be more comfortable or familiar with would be something like purity. And, you know, again, I think there are two things that are interesting about this. A, that it's not only our own. When it comes to sexual ethics in our culture, we tend to think what makes me happy and what doesn't violate someone else's rights or their um, their wishes. But instead here, this entire direction of what does sexual purity look like for the Christian, seen through the lens of the commandment, it looks like retaining chastity, purity. Uh, chaste also has the sense of being disciplined in heart, speech, and behavior, not just for self, but for neighbor. And where we might be tempted to talk about what is permissible and, tr- and try to say, well, what can we do? This says that anytime we, that takes us into impure thoughts, words, and actions, unchaste, undisciplined, unhealthy, or unwholesome, thoughts, words, and actions, we are outside the teaching of the commandment. This is, you know, it again, it's unfortunate that the language is sort of archaic because this is remarkably helpful, I think, to modern ears if we could put it in our context and wrestle with it. I, I think it's helpful. I also think it is troubling. I mean, if we're going to be honest, Clint, if we hear this rightly, uh, this is going to both trouble the lists that we've made, uh, the, the list that some of us, if we were going to be honest, that the list comforts us, right? Well, I haven't done this sexually or I haven't done that thing that would be reprehensible, uh, whatever thing gets put on that list. And then that becomes a shield 
from us evaluating the thoughts, the words, the ways that we have put blockades in front of other people, that we've made it about our own interpretation of sinfulness rather than uh, seeing what is true, and that is uh, our relation as humans to a holy, perfectly pure God, right? And the idea that this this idea of adultery, which I think we often uh, give a very specific cultural meaning to, if we're willing to see it broaden as the framers do here, and I think very troublingly, if we're willing to allow them to be so concise in their language and therefore call everything else into honest uh, assessment. I mean, I think that there is a really uh, unnerving kind of um, openness here in this phrase, um, both for us to question some of the assumptions that we've made and also for us to find ourselves at the center of some judgment here. If we just lead and say, well, I'm glad, check that one off. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not sure that you've exactly heard what's being said here because I think the response to one who's heard it may be, uh, I too uh, have sin in my own heart and and I I also can't meet the perfect um, uh, place that um, is set out for us here in this commandment. You know, if you know your Bible a little bit, you'll know that this very clearly follows the teaching of the New Testament. Jesus is asked about adultery, and he talks about lust. Um, I, I think the, these two questions follow suit in that they both go beyond action to heart and speech. Uh, they, they both internalize the conversation so that it can't just be about, I've done this thing or I haven't done this thing, that it's a deeper struggle than that in a world that is flooded with pornography and sexuality in advertising in our homes on our phones with with just the amazing unbelievable proliferation of the way those technologies are used in those arenas and for those purposes this is a challenging call to faithfulness for Christians in the modern world. It's uh, surprising, perhaps, that it could come from a a very different time and place, but I think remarkably current, remarkably applicable, Michael, if we can listen to it. Yeah, and I think that's going to only continue when we move to the next commandment, because like adultery, stealing, Clint, is a thing I think that we often think in very concrete terms of we know what that means, and that's about to get troubled. Yeah, question 73, what's the Eighth Commandment? Thou shall not steal. What's required in this Eighth Commandment? It requires the lawful procuring and furthering the wealth and outward estate of ourselves and others. What is forbidden? The Eighth Commandment forbids whatever does or may unjustly hinder our own or our neighbor's wealth or outward estate. So um, I think this one is fascinating because it is is so entirely biblical. Uh, It would be impossible, I think, to read this. What does it require? Well, lawful gaining and furthering of wealth. And when it says lawful, it doesn't just mean legal in the sense of does the place you live condone it. It means biblically. It means morally. The law being spoken of here is a higher law than the law of the land. The the righteous procuring and furthering of wealth and outward estate for self and other. 
And what is forbidden? For procuring or unjustly gaining, either to ourself or our neighbor, in hurting, um, doing something unjust to our neighbor's wealth or outward estate. And I think what's fascinating about that, Michael, is I can imagine immediately the question follows, well, who's my neighbor? <laughs> Which is the question of the parable. This is the question when when Jesus was asked these kind of things and said, you've got to care for your neighbor. We We want to start defining it. We want to start pinning it down. And essentially, a commandment that starts with do not steal, in which most of us can confidently say, you know, I'm not, I don't really do that. It's not really, I, I'm okay on this commandment, very quickly becomes a measure to examine whether our own situation unjustly affects the situation of others. And that is a very different and very much more difficult and troubling conversation. One of the innovations of the 21st century Christian church and only certain branches of the church, but a real innovation is this idea of a God blessing us, this this mm. prosperity kind of gospel. And I submit to you that any gospel, any theological way of understanding God and God's work in, our, in the world and in our lives that does not cause us to uh, do real measured and sustained self-examination that does not call us to ask real questions of our motivation and the outcome of our work, Clint, if there is any gospel which tells us that everything is about you becoming richer and more wealthy, more prestigious, more, more capable, and never calls you to take account of your soul, of your effect on another person, uh, you have not heard the Ten Commandments in their fullness. Now, that's not me saying, I want to be clear, that's not me saying that God uh, does not uh, bless us with things, make us stewards of things that we might be able to bless others, of course. But the Christian tradition for thousands of years has been framed and shaped by this Eighth Commandment, Clint, and, and our forebears have told us, be very, very careful with money. Uh, a kind of caution, by the way, which is incredibly biblical, to your point. I mean, Jesus's own teachings on money would uh, lead us to be very, very cautious about how we might use that tool against others or towards our own ends. And to whatever extent we find ourselves consistently at the center of benefiting, especially at another person's expense, there is no place for it in the biblical code. Yeah, I think there, there probably are parts of the Old Testament where you could read in the idea that you could be blessed at someone else's expense. I think that largely, if not completely, disappears in the New Testament, Michael, with the idea of sacrifice, with the idea of service, with the idea of go the extra mile and give the extra cloak. I just think that that would be a very, very difficult case to make from reading the New Testament and through that lens. And I think we see that reflected here in this, so that stealing is not simply the taking of what someone else has, it's the preventing them from having it. It's the lessening of their livelihood for your own gain. I, I think this is a call to ethics in a much broader context. And again, one of those that I think is remarkably modern, is remarkably applicable, even in our very different time and place. You know, Clint, there's an interesting and difficult tension here, as there is with the other 
commandments as well. But I, I think in the modern age, a lot of our conversations about do not steal have actually been very political conversations. And by that, I mean mm -hmm. they've been very nation-state kind of conversations. And I want to be clear. I think that there are real implications for Christians who live in a, a country in which they have the privilege of getting to vote. If you live in a place where you get to have a say in the governance of the people, then this has implications for how you conduct that power in the world. Uh, that said... It is very easy to externalize this and say, not my problem. Well, I'm not the one that passes laws, or I'm not the one who adjudicates those laws. Uh, there's a way in which this calls us to ask very real questions about, you know, do I need an extra shed for all of my stuff? Um, do I, uh, have I acquired to an extent to which I have not given uh, someone like a uh, John Wesley would would call I think the modern church to ask some real questions about consumerism and the temptation to acquire um, there, there, if we're willing to allow this question to set the tone and the parameter Clint I think my point is there is a lot of places where, that we could be critiqued and we could allow ourselves to be convicted um, we don't have time for all of that here today but if you just say hey I didn't walk into a store and steal something from that store, um, that's the bare minimum uh, to uh, add extremum. That's the bare minimum of what is at play in a question like this. And I think that only continues and maybe even, uh, maybe even increases a little bit as we go to commandment nine, Michael, the ninth commandment, thou shall not bear false witness against thy neighbor. What is required in the ninth commandment? The ninth commandment requires the maintaining and promoting of truth between men and men, people, and our own and our neighbor's good name, especially in witness-bearing. What is forbidden? The Ninth Commandment forbids whatever is prejudicial to truth or injurious to our own or our neighbor's good name. Uh, classic case in point to what you were just saying, Michael. If we think that the Ninth Commandment is going to let us off the hook because we haven't quote-unquote lied, um, Though our social media feed is filled with slander and name calling and whatever, we are going to be hit between the eyes with this interpretation from Westminster. Um, it is whatever promotes truth and whatever uphold our, upholds our neighbor's good name, what is forbidden, anything prejudicial or injures that which injures our neighbor's good name. So again, um, fascinating in so many of these that the commandment is really seen from the perspective of the other, not simply my own responsibility, but what it does to someone else. Does it lift them or does it push them down? And I think we see it here, you know, the, the idea of false witness is a kind of tough, it, it's a kind of tough idea. Lying is clearer, but but less helpful in the sense that it isn't big enough false witness here, the idea that I, I'm being I'm being a bad witness to the gospel in the way that I talk about or treat another. And again, Michael, not to say the same thing just over and over and over again, but that's a much wider gate, that's a much bigger net, and it's a much deeper struggle. I don't think that this is a hot take. Uh, maybe it is, Clint. Um, if we never stand under truth and are found wanting— we've not found truth. Mm -hmm. um, the true 
things of the world will always convict us at some level. Uh, they will never completely affirm. Now, this is an incredibly reformed statement, but I think defensible that that when we encounter truth, yes, there, there will be resonances to our own experience. I mean, clearly, uh, you at some point in your life, if you've been open to God's revealing, you have bumped into truth, but no one can hold on to it and claim it completely. And if you apply the standard of your thought and your speech, and I'm even going to take this a step further and say to uh, what you consume, what you watch and what you read, what you listen to, um, if you apply that metric or that ruler to all of these different fields of life, I submit to you, you will find um, that you um, have both uh, taken in and you have pushed out uh, things that fall short of the full gospel, things that fall short of the truth of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And if we uh, do not confess and admit that to ourselves, we are fools and we are we are likely to be led astray by people who tell us this is exactly the whole truth and uh, you know I can sell it to you for $50 or whatever the promise is, or I can promise you a better happy life if you just vote this way. I mean, Clint, truth here is meant theologically. It's meant mm-hmm. this idea that when we bear false witness, it's not just that we told a white lie. It's that what we have consumed or thought or done has put us outside the perfect revelation of Jesus. And if that is the case, the only hope we have is his grace. And the only real faithful action we can take is confe- confession of our failing and a recognition that the truth is outside of us and not contained by us. I suspect, Michael, that the idea of multiple versions or of things claiming to be true would likely not be shocking to the Westminster authors. This is a thing that has been the case in human history. Having said that, I can't imagine that the men who wrote this document could begin to wrap their head around the availability of perspectives in in our social media world, in our internet world, the idea that I can, for anything I want to believe, find someone who is telling me it's true, that I can reinforce my own perspective, my own opinion over and over and over again. And that that in the spite of all other evidence, I can claim it as objectively true with the support of some community behind me is, I think, a new moment in human history. I I don't think the human experiment has ever traveled this ground before. And in that context, questions like what is true, what does it mean that something is true, are we going to tolerate untruth when we see it? Or are we okay if we think it fits some bigger purpose? Do we really believe the things that are said, or do we just do we just take them as well? It's just part of this game we're all playing. I, I think we live in a moment of fascinating questions about the nature and the use and usefulness of truth in a way that I I don't imagine the divines could have thought of. I just don't. I I think they would be absolutely rocked by the idea of the plurality of things that try to present themselves as true. And so 
not bearing false witness has a nuance for us that I think really is going to demand some very careful thoughtfulness, some some questioning. And and I I think we don't yet. I think we're so early in it, Michael, that I'm not sure we even know what to do with it. And, yeah, and I don't want to get hung up here, but I want to make it clear that I, I don't put myself as outside the judgment of this command. I mean, it, sure. I uh, disagree with lots of different uh, people or perspectives in, in public spheres, like I'm sure all of us do. And I have caught myself at times saying things that are incredibly derogatory about their name. I mean, dragging people through the mud. And, you know, some of that is endemic to our our social media and the way that virality works and, and people dogpile on other people. But when I've caught myself doing that, and it's happened more often than I'd like to admit, I have tried to hear a command like this as censuring me. And I've tried to take a step back and use different language and describe a person with their real humanity. Um, because we live in a moment, Clint, where it's not only tempting, but it's celebrated to drag another person through the mud and and to to say something that is counter to their good name. I mean, you're right. So if that's the very smallest interpretation of this command, I think all of us uh, on some level, if we're going to admit it, have some work to do. Yeah, without a doubt. And, and I think the danger of the moment we're in is that with so many versions of truth, we begin to struggle with, is there any truth? And um, Christians have a lot of work to do in regard to not bearing false witness in those moments. Well, that brings us to the final commandment. What, what is the Ten Commandment? The Ten Commandment is, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, nor thy neighbor's wife, servant, ox, ass, go anything that is thy neighbor. What is required in this commandment? This commandment requires the full contentment with our own conditions, with a right and charitable frame of spirit toward our neighbor and all that is his. What is forbidden? The 10th commandment forbids discontentment with our own estate, envying, envying or grieving at the good of our neighbor and all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. Uh, here again, an interesting place to end, but an interesting conversation. Uh, covet is to want something that belongs to someone else. Covet is to be jealous. It is uh, to be untoward, to be uncharitable, to be uh, miserly. All of this wrapped up in this idea that what re is required of us is a sort of contentment, a contentment that leads to generosity, a contentment that allows us to celebrate the good fortune of others rather than to uh, be jealous of it, rather than to be injured by it, um, to be in good spirit, and to honor what is our neighbor's, uh, both for his good, her good, their good, and our own good. And I, I think, you know, there again, Michael, covet's a tough word. Um, not a word that we use regularly, a deep word that is, I, I think rightly so, takes some effort to unpack, but most good things do. And this idea of contentment, you know, we, we don't live in a society that um, I think thinks of contentment very highly or very often. I, I think, you know, from the time we are brought into the world as Americans, 
we are being led to think about what's next. What do we want? What what are we pursuing? Where do we want to go? What job do we want? What school do we want? What we're we're sort of trained by our culture to look at the next thing. And contentment's a tough word in that arena. Yeah, as many of you who follow us uh, and join our conversations know, I'm, I'm a tech aficionado, and I'll tell you, uh, tech companies and tech advertisers are built on the premise of deconstructing contentment, <laughs> right? I mean, every time there's a new device, what, what, what are we told about it? It's faster. It's more secure. It does more things, has new features. Um, and all that does is it helps to destroy the foundation of what you were relatively happy with the day before. Whatever phone you had or whatever computer you used or whatever game you played, you were relatively happy with what it did. But what our culture tells us is the next thing is better than the thing that you have. And, and the, I'm sorry to interrupt, Michael, but possibly even that you are better if you have the yeah, next yeah, thing. Yeah, because we connect it to identity. Sure. And I think the wisdom here, Clint, is note um, in 79, it's the house, it's the place of residence, it's the relationship with the spouse, it is that person's staff, it's that uh, we might not make sense of the ox and the donkey, but uh, these are uh, money-making devices. These are the, the, sure. the forms and tools of economy. And then anything that's neighbors. I mean, the point of this is once again in this scope of broadening as you start the conversation today, we, as we see it happening here, we recognize that it, it's really every blessing God has given another should be celebrated for their own sake, that God has blessed them. Because if we don't do that, Clint, then what we fail to see is the way that God has blessed us. That we, we fail to see ourselves rightly because we're failing to see our neighbor rightly. And of course, this is tempting for lots of reasons. I think culturally, we're in a moment where there's a literal economy built on top of um, actually working against this spiritual practice. So that you know makes it difficult onto its own end. But friends, I mean, let's not pat ourselves on the back. This has never been easy. I'm not certain that we can claim that this is the hardest it's ever been. I mean, the reality is yeah. human nature wants to claim for ourselves. We've always been unhappy with our station. That is the fundamental story of Genesis 3. So I, I just want to make the point and make it clear here um, that we are called to the same standard that as Christians have always been called. Now, we may have different challenges along the way in our own lives of faith. We need to meet those thoughtfully, um, and we need to be intentional about the way that we live and, uh, quite frankly, what we consume. But as we do that, it's for the same purpose, Clint. It's for the, we're going to the same end, and that is recognizing the God who has given all things and being grateful as those who've received what God's given. I think the ultimate danger of a sin like coveting, Michael, is that it, in the final analysis, convinces me that my wants and needs are most important because the the church has misused this commandment we have we have pointed it at people who were being abused who were in being kept in low stations who weren't given the opportunities and we told them well you have to be content god wants you to be content with what you have all the while on the other side of the commandment someone trying to get more and i think that the protection afforded to us is that if we look past ourselves to our neighbor 
and we are genuinely and truly concerned with their well-being and condition, as we've seen in these other commandments, then we are protected from the kind of misuse. Because discontentment can be a powerful motivator. Some wonderful things in the world have been done out of a discontent. But I would argue at best for Christians, the discontentment is hopefully when I'm discontent on someone else's behalf. When I see someone else and I say that what is happening to them isn't right, it isn't fair, we need to work to do better rather than to tell someone, well, I'm sorry things aren't going well for you, but you don't want to covet. You don't, you don't want to look at that nicer house. You don't want to look at that nicer life. You just, you just stay where you are and be happy about it. it that, that is clearly, that, that's a misuse of the commandment. It's a misuse of the scripture. It, it's, it's just something that we, we shouldn't do, and I think we can't do when we understand that the commandments ask us to take this perspective not only of self but of the other. As we make our way through these commandments that call us to to evaluate our relationships, our orientation in relation to our uh, world and our culture, Clint, I think what we find over and over and over again is the human temptation to try to turn all of these things to our own benefit, to our own enjoyment, our own pleasure, our own use. And the commandments will consistently demand that all of this is God's, Mm -hmm. that all of these uh, serve for the purpose of us, wait for it, glorifying God. At this point, Westminster, that is not surprising language to us. And if you allow that interpretive frame to guide our reading of the Ten Commandments, then really what I think we learn is that these are spiritual guideposts on the journey, to use one metaphor. Maybe another metaphor would be um, they are the tools of our exercising faithfulness. Maybe that would be a better way of thinking of it like going to a gym, that when we practice uh, charity, when we practice um, speaking of others, even our enemy, uh, in ways that honors their humanity. I mean, what, maybe we could think of these as opportunities and invitations to living our lives in a way that looks faithful. However you want to think about whatever metaphor is helpful for you, I think I want to just make clear at the end of the conversation, this is not about you being an A student. It's not about you getting it right. It's not about you looking really good in front of a church community and you pointing the finger at others who fail to keep these. These commandments, if we hear them rightly, should unnerve us. They should put us off balance because then they will move us towards the one who wants to take us and put us back into balance. This is all about God. This is serving God's glory and God's purposes. And if we hear this other than that, then I fear that we've not heard the commandments as intended. Yeah, absolutely. I think, Michael, if we approach the Ten Commandments with the idea that they're a list of rules that I've kept mostly and, you know, I I can keep mostly— I think we're going to miss the depth of them, which is to engage us in a conversation about holiness and our own falling short of it. Have we, have we hurt our neighbor's name? Have we been untrue in relationships? Have we cast verse, false versions of ourselves? Have we been unchaste in thought, 
and in word? Have we been impure? You know, that that is a much deeper, much more profitable. Have we preserved life for others? I, I think, you know, ultimately that's a path that's going to lead to a much deeper consideration and conversation about what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And and I think our ancestors blessedly and rightly understood that that is the best way to engage what seems like a fairly straightforward, simple list of things you should and shouldn't do. And unfortunately, I think they've helped us get under that and and mine the much deeper value that is found in that. It's a great summary. I hope that there's been something in this conversation that you found encouraging and challenging. Uh, Friends want to make note, maybe uh, you already knew, that this this series is all contained in our audio podcast. So if that's a better format for you, check that out in the description of this video. Uh, If you know someone else who would like to uh, engage in this conversation with us, uh, certainly feel free to share this with them. And if you have comments or thoughts, definitely put them in the comments of this video or share it with us in the feedback form in the description. Uh, We're glad to get to spend some time with you. And uh, we look forward to continuing this conversation with you next time. Thanks, everybody.